0: Welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of Miller and the Prime Minister. The citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 41. And when the history books are written, this will likely be viewed as the most important case of 2019 and one of the biggest of the past decade. It needs very little introduction, but things are moving so fast with Brexit and UK politics in general that it is hard to remember exactly what happened when. At the time these proceedings came about, the UK was due to leave the European Union on the 31st of October under the Boris Johnson government. The Prime Minister was, politically speaking, very committed to that deadline, but faced problems from a parliament that was keen to scrutinise any plans and generally agree some sort of deal with the EU before exit day, so that the country did not crash out. In order to avoid this inevitable clash for as long as possible, Downing Street tried to prorogue Parliament for an extended period of time, so that there was far less oversight. To offer a little bit of context here, prorogation is basically the time between the end of one parliamentary session and the start of a new one, where there is no legislative business. Prorogation is therefore not unusual or unique, but the length of time was considered by many in this instance to be excessive. Preparations began during the summer when No. 10's Director of Legislative Affairs sent a memo to the Prime Minister recommending prorogation begin somewhere between the 9th and the 12th of September, and last until a Queen's speech more than a month later on the 14th of October. Boris Johnson responded by affirming his approval of that recommendation. In late August, he then spoke to the Queen and passed on that advice so that when, a day later, there was a meeting of the Privy Council up in Balmoral, an ordering council was made to the effect that Parliament be prorogued in between those dates. Back in Westminster, this ordering council was followed by a cabinet meeting and then the decision was publicised in a letter sent from the Prime Minister... Two members of Parliament. It was at this point that the present legal proceedings were commenced by Gina Miller, who is already quite famous for her 2016 legal proceedings against the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. Although it is important to point out that this is conjoined with an earlier Scottish case brought by 75 MPs and a QC who feared as early as late July that this is the way that the Prime Minister would go. Anyway, in the meantime, Parliament did return from recess on the 3rd of September, and the House of Commons almost immediately voted to take control of business, as MPs knew that time was of the essence. Within a week, they had passed the European Union Withdrawal No. 2 Act 2019, more commonly known as the Benn Act, which, for all intents and purposes, delayed Brexit beyond the 31st of October deadline. Nonetheless, both the English and Scottish cases proceeded. In the English courts, Ms Miller's claim was dismissed as the High Court held that the issue was not justiciable in a court of law. The Scottish case enjoyed much more success as not only did the inner house of the court of session find that the issue was justiciable, but they decided that the decision to prorogue Parliament was motivated by a desire to prohibit parliamentary scrutiny of the government, and thus prorogation was unlawful. The Lord Advocate appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, while Ms. Miller did the same from England, and so that is where we pick the case up. For such an important case, there were 11 justices on the panel, and they had to begin by addressing the justiciability issue. In a constitutional sense, the courts have always had some sort of supervisory role when it comes to the actions of the government. That is really the nature of judicial review, and as Lady Hale noted in the court's unanimous judgment, there is precedent for this supervision that dates back as far as 1611. As part of that, it is necessary to consider whether there is a prerogative power, the extent to which that prerogative power exists, and also if its exercise is open to legal challenge. Where this is an open question, it is for the courts to come to a final decision – and set the limits of its own jurisdiction. It's for this reason that the Supreme Court held that the issue was justiciable, and so moved on to the more substantive question about the limits on the power to prorogue Parliament. The starting point here is the central constitutional principle of parliamentary sovereignty, whereby if Parliament passes a law, then that is automatically authoritative and must be obeyed by everyone in the land. This central tenet of our democracy would be significantly undermined if the executive branch were able to stymie the exercise of this power for as long as it liked. Alongside this, the other important aspect of the UK's constitution that ought to be considered is accountability to Parliament. In other words, it must be possible for the actions and conduct of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet to be held accountable to the legislative branch through exercises such as Prime Minister's questions and the like. There is as such a balance that is to be maintained between the power of the executive branch to prorogue parliament and these constitutional principles that underpin parliamentary democracy. The result is that a prorogation will generally be lawful unless it serves to frustrate or prevent, without reasonable justification, the exercise of the constitutional functions that we just mentioned, parliamentary sovereignty and accountability. If prorogation does have that effect, then it doesn't matter what the purpose or motive was, it will be unlawful. So, did the most recent prorogation meet this criteria? Well, according to the Supreme Court, not really. At that time, the exit date from the European Union was set to be the 31st of October 2019, and this was a relevant date to consider because of the significant constitutional import. However, the prorogation would prevent Parliament from sitting and carrying out its constitutional function for five out of the eight weeks between the end of summer recess and that date. The idea that in a representative democracy, the representatives of the people would be completely denied a voice in the run-up to this crucial date is clearly unacceptable. Furthermore, there was no evidence produced by the government that justified such an extensive prorogation. In fact, the only evidence was that initial recommendation by Downing Street's Director of Legislative Affairs back in August, but this only explained why having a Queen's speech on the 14th of October would be a good idea, and did not speak at all to the reasoning behind such a long period of prorogation prior to that. Taking all of this into account, the Supreme Court came to the conclusion that the prorogation was unlawful, because there was no reasonable justification for denying Parliament the ability to carry out its proper constitutional functions. That legal ruling is all well and good, but the Supreme Court then had to move on and decide what the practical legal consequences of its decision would be. This is far from straightforward, as it is not like the court can force Parliament to meet, and the government has even argued that the Scottish inner house did not have the power to declare that the prorogation was null and void. The Supreme Court began by noting that they can certainly make a declaration to the effect that the advice to prorogue Parliament was unlawful. Lady Hale then went on to discuss whether it is possible to make a declaration that the prorogation was of no effect, as the Inner House had done. The counter-argument from the government was that the prorogation was a quote «proceeding in Parliament» end quote, within the Bill of Rights from 1688, and thus could not be challenged in court. The justices disagreed with this assessment, and held that while the prorogation proceeding does take place in the House of Lords Chamber, in the presence of the members of the Commons and the Lords, it is not actually their decision. Instead, it is something that is imposed upon them by the Crown. The aim of the Bill of Rights is to protect the business and interests of Parliament, but instead prorogation is an action that brings that business to an end, and so fails to fall within that definition. Overall then, if the advice that was given to the Queen was void and unlawful, then that also means that the subsequent order in council was void and unlawful as well, and should be quashed. As Lady Hale put it in her conclusion, when the Royal Commissioners walked into the House of Lords, it was as if they walked in with a blank sheet of paper. The practical result of this case was that shortly after the judgment was hunted down, the Speaker of the House of Commons at the time, John Burko, gave a statement to the press saying that Parliament would reconvene the very next day. Indeed it did, and on the first day back there was a mixed reaction to the judgement. Those on the opposition benches were critical of the legal advice, and some even called on the Prime Minister to resign. Meanwhile, many Conservatives were critical of the judgement, but nevertheless said that they respected it. However, as the October 31st deadline loomed ever closer and parliamentary business rolled on, the judgement soon moved out of the news cycle, but that does not mean that we should forget about it. From my point of view, I was initially surprised when I heard the judgement. Not necessarily because I disagreed with the result itself, but more because it was a big and probably quite brave step for the Supreme Court. After all, one of the main criticisms was that this was an intensely political judgement, and that is a difficult charge to deny. It would have been very easy for the justices to declare that the issue is non-justiciable, and that it is ultimately for the executive branch to make the decisions as regards prorogation. That is what I thought would happen, because although the issue itself does not directly relate to Brexit, it did rightly appear to much of the public and mainstream media as an intervention on the subject by the unelected judiciary. This can come across as undemocratic, but in the end I think it is precisely because of our system of parliamentary democracy that the justices felt the need to intervene. As they hinted at in the twin principles of parliamentary sovereignty and accountability, it is Parliament that sits at the heart of the British constitution, and it is unthinkable that it should be denied a voice in the lead-up to what would have been one of the greatest constitutional changes the country has faced in modern times. For many, this parliament only served to actually obstruct the democratic result of the referendum in 2016, but that is a rather irresponsible conclusion to draw. It is true that Brexit was in the end delayed beyond the 31st of October as a result of the machinations of parliament, but... As the judgment notes, scrutiny by MPs goes far beyond this and also involves the questioning of ministers. With the prospect that Britain would crash out of the European Union, it was pretty clear, no matter what side of the debate that you were on, that the government was not well prepared for that scenario. Beyond an expensive advertising campaign that basically told you to check your passport, and a few fake traffic jams organised near Dover, it became obvious that the country was not really ready and crashing out would have done significant harm to the economy. If that had become a reality, it would have been the fault of the government and the only way that real pressure could have been applied is through questioning by MPs in the chambers of the Houses of Parliament. As we move closer towards the 2019 general election and eventually a new parliament, it is vital to remember the important role that MPs play Whatever happens next with Brexit, it will be in their hands. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provides the theme music. Remember, if you want to find out more about me or my work, then you can visit my website at uklawweekly.com, or you can visit my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Anyway, I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!